0: Thank you, music team. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, It's a little bit lighter crowd today because we have about, I don't know, 11 or 12 families that are off camping, so that takes out about 24 adults and 60 kids. (laughs) And uh, I noticed that it rained really hard this morning. I don't know whether God's trying to say something about camping (laughs) during church, maybe. That's not fair. Maybe they got data and they're tuning in right now. Who knows? Um, No, it's great. It's great that our young families have that community. Great that they get away and uh, great that they share time and fellowship together. Uh, It's fantastic. Um, We are on our final week now of the Summer Doctrine Series. Summer is finally over. And uh, last week we were considering the day of the Lord and the last judgment, and uh, our text ended in 2 Peter 3.13. Uh, But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so today, as we conclude, we're going to be considering heaven and the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And if you'd like a little additional information on that, as I have done in this series, uh, J.I. Packer, if you have your concise theology, which I think just about every household has now, it's page 264, a prior sermon, if you wanted to hear more on this in 2015, uh, about the same time of year, actually. Uh, Jesus, Light of the New Heaven and New Earth is on the website. Uh, and further reading, you can pick up the book, actually almost any book by Randy Alcorn, but I would recommend Randy Alcorn's Eternal Perspective uh, as a good starting point into his, um, yeah, his teaching on heaven and how it applies to discipleship in our life. So there's just some extra resources for you. Um, now, there's a number of reasons why the topic of heaven and the new creation is important to Christians. And quite often, we feel it's important to us to satisfy our curiosity about our eternal state, the eternal state of the saints. And that's often what we investigate and talk about the most. That's why we buy the Randy Alcorn books, because we want to imagine what is heaven like? What is it going to be like when we get there? And that's important. That's not A bad reason to investigate heaven, Um, but as we look through the scriptures uh, and to search the scriptures and rightly understand heaven, I think more importantly contributes to our knowledge of the character and the plan and the purpose of God. What God reveals to us about heaven reveals things about himself. What God teaches us about heaven is to teach us about him and about his plan and what is going on in the world and how we are to live in this life. Um, He's not just giving us glimpses of heaven to satisfy our curiosity. He has a practical purpose for us now. And so we're going to look at both of those things today. As we consider what Scripture reveals to us about heaven, uh, we're going to consider what does heaven teach us about God and what should it be teaching us about what we are to live like now. But we're also going to see staggering and awesome and difficult to imagine rewards revealed and held in store for us in the descriptions of heaven that Scripture gives us. But as I said, also the glory and the purposes of God and his redemptive plan to restore all things, which is really at the heart of what the new heavens and the new earth is about. The most descriptive portion of text about heaven and the new creation comes suitably in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. There's a lot there, but I'm going to focus on the summary statements of Revelation 21, 1-4 and 22, 1-3 as our core text. And we're just going to unpack those sort of summary statements with some cross-references to see what we can know about our eternal state and know about God based on these realities. One thing I want to just sort of preface the reading of Revelation with, and this kind of applies to all of Revelation, um, is that as we read the language that the Apostle John uses here, as, as God pulls back the curtain and shows John a glimpse of spiritual and physical realities, the language that's used is expressive and it's extraordinary. It crosses over mere description into figurative and imaginative and almost poetic language. And we sometimes need to be reminded that when language is used figuratively and poetically, it's not done so to decrease the reality of what is being described, but to increase the reality. Uh, the reason poets write poetically is to stir up a greater imagination of reality, not a lesser one. Um, the reason painters paint in impressionistic uh Methods is to go beyond reality and show us what they are seeing and what we should see that it surpasses reality. So language used this way is to reach beyond mere description to describe a more tangible reality than simple prose can convey. And so as we read what is given us here in Revelation, we realize that whatever Revelation is describing it's not merely as real as it is described. It is, in fact, more real than can be described. And that is true of virtually everything in uh, the poetic and figurative texts of the Bible. Let me just pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this series on doctrine that we've been able to now for 10 or 11 weeks, whatever it's been, to just look at truths that guide our lives that come from your scripture, the fundamental basics of what our faith is, who you are, your plan for us, and how we should live. And so, Lord, today as we look at Revelation, as we look at some other texts where you peel back the curtain and show us glimpses of what is to come, Father, may we apply it properly to our lives and be encouraged, Father, that we would live today in light of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, Revelation 21, 1-4. to And this is the Apostle John speaking, just for those of you that are catching up on the Bible. Uh, this is the Apostle John near the end of his life. He's um, been um, isolated on the Isle of Patmos. And an angel comes and gives him these revelations, these exposures to spiritual realities that are beyond our understanding. And the angel tells him to write these things down that he saw for our edification. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And in Revelation 22, 1 to 3, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So the first thing that we understand about the eternal state, about the reality of heaven is the new heaven and the new earth. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And, and, and what we see here at the consummation is the consummation of God's promise and plan to make all things new. If you were just to step back and boil the Bible down to the simplest possible story arc, what is the Bible about? It would look like this. God created all things good Creation falls into sin and curse. God redeems and restores all creation. That's the Bible. Everything from Genesis to Revelation is explaining God created, creation fell, God's restoring and redeeming. And so we have here in the new heavens and the new earth this this revelation of what is to come, the culmination of God's promise to accomplish what he set out to do. And that right there immediately frames our understanding of heaven and the new creation as something that speaks mainly about God and not mainly about us. The whole point of heaven is that it's the consummation of his plan. It is the fulfillment of his promise. It is the accomplishment of his work. It is the reality of the nature of a patient, faithful, and healing God. It exposes who he is. God is such that he does not intend to leave mankind or creation in its fallen state, but that God will rescue and renew it. That is the God that we serve and the God that we worship. Heaven is the completion of his promise and his faithfulness to that promise. He told the people of Israel in Isaiah, Chapter 65, for behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And then in in chapter 66, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. God made this promise to the people. He said, I'm going to remake all of this, and it will remain forever, and you will remain with me forever. So that's the first thing we understand is that as the new heavens and the new earth are remade and creation is caught up into the glory of God and in the worship of him, this is the consummation of God's promise that is a reality of God's nature because he is faithful, because he is healing, because he is redemptive, because that is who God is, heaven will happen. We also see surprisingly that we're not actually going to spend our eternity in heaven as we typically think of it. It's a new heaven and a new earth. The word heaven, Aranus, in the Greek, it's used three different ways in the Bible, and it's always clear how it's being used by context. First of all, it's used in regard to creation. The heavens are the sky and the stars and the, the vast unknown that is above us. A few times, heaven is used as a synonym or a metonym of God. A metonym just means like a substitute word. Um, it's used that way, for instance, when Jesus asked the Pharisees, was John's baptism from men or from heaven? It's kind of like, you know, um, you know was, that, was that information that came from uh, parliament? And parliament is kind of used as a stand-in for the government, right? So heaven is kind of used as a stand-in word sometimes for God. But then the third way that heaven is used, of course, is that it is used to describe the place where God dwells. Jesus prays our Father who is in heaven in Matthew 6, 9. Jesus came from heaven, we're told in John three thirteen, Angels come from heaven, we're told in Matthew and Luke and Mark. And so heaven is the place wherever God is and is dwelling and where Jesus has returned. It's the place that he's always been, and it's a real place. We learn about it in Job chapter 1, when the angels are in the presence of God. We catch a glimpse of it in Isaiah chapter 6, where he sees the angels, the seraphim, worshiping, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels told the disciples, this Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven in Acts 1.11. So heaven is a place, and this has been a sort of a theological debate for a long time. It's hard to say where it's a place. It's not important to know. God probably has heaven, you know, hidden away in some quantum pocket dimension in the middle of a black hole somewhere. Wherever he wanted to put it, if he wanted us to know where it was, he would have told us, but it's somewhere real because Jesus is there sitting on the right hand in his resurrection body, and angels are there And the Christians who have departed before the judgment are with him in spirit. To be absent from our body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. But to our point here in Revelation, we won't actually be spending our eternity in that heaven. That heaven where God is is not where he plans for us to spend eternity, even though we tend to refer to it that way and think of it that way. God is, in fact, making a new creation And verse 2 actually says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so the place where we're going to dwell is actually a place that God is making in heaven. He's creating it in heaven. He's preparing it in heaven. But it's going to come down into the new creation. And that is where we will dwell. And that is where we will worship and serve. And that tells us some things about God and the new heaven and ourselves as well. We learn... That the creation, the reality, the the eternity that God has in store for us is material. It's physical. It is a new heavens and a new earth. God made the physical world in the first place, and he intends to restore a physical material world. And the implication being that the, the new material creation and all material pleasures will be perfected. That we will get to experience all the things that we should experience perfectly on earth, but don't, we will be able to experience in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not easy to imagine this, but somehow, if you just try and imagine this for me, somehow all things material will be remade new for our joy and for God's glory. And so I don't know what that looks like, but I... I find it hard to believe. I don't think God made sunsets and waterfalls and country gardens and tropical beaches only to destroy them forever. The material world that God created is not bad. It is beautiful. When God saw what he created, he called it good. And then he placed mankind in to tend his creation and enjoy it. And he called it very good. And so when heaven comes down into creation, the implication is is that we will be able to enjoy a perfect material creation, but without idolatry. You see, the problem that the material world has for us right now, prior to the new heaven and the new earth, prior to the new heaven and the new earth, as Peter says, where righteousness dwells, is that we are tempted to substitute the created for the creator. We are tempted to put our hope and our security and our satisfaction and our joy and our trust on what God has made for us rather than on God himself. And so we trust our youth or our health or our money or our career or our wisdom or our spouse or our children. And we put our hope and our satisfaction and our joy and our security on the created things rather than on the creator, and that's idolatry. But somehow, we will be able to enjoy a perfect material creation, and yet without idolatry. Because God will be in all things and through all things, as we will see later, he will be the light that illuminates everything. And so that everything in the material world that we enjoy in the new creation, in the new heavens, and the new earth, will be illuminated by God. So it will be impossible to enjoy a sunset without worshiping God at the same time. C.S. Lewis says at the completion of his Narnia series, and if you've ever read the Narnia series and know C.S. Lewis, you know that it is an allegory of the Christian life. In the book The Last Battle, as the heroes finally reach new Narnia with Aslan, they proclaim, this is the land... I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And that gives us a clue, too. C.S. Lewis shows us here, in his poetic language, a wisdom, I think, and a meaning of how we are to understand our use as disciples today in this material world. When we see a sunset, When we see a tropical beach, when we see a raspberry or a blueberry or anything, a child, we see through those things to what they point to, to the God of the universe who created them. Because the reason we are tempted to love what we love in this world is because they are a dim reflection of what is to come. So we learn in the new heaven and the new earth that it is material, and material is good, and God plans a material existence for us, and that we'll be able to live there and enjoy those material pleasures, but without idolatry, and that it's not clouds and harps and all of that sort of heaven. It's a new heaven and a new earth. We also see from this text, though, that heaven is also where God is at the center We see at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3 that John sees the new Jerusalem as a city, but also as a bride prepared for her husband. And the relationship of God to man will be set right. This is the central theme of heaven arriving. The city arrives as prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, what's this all about? What's the big deal? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's heaven. Finally, (laughs) you know, we saw it attempted after Eden. God chooses a people, calls them his people, brings them to a promised land, rescues them out of slavery, says you're going to be my people. I'm taking you to a promised land that flows with milk and honey, and I will be with you. You're going to build a temple. I'm going to dwell amongst you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. Didn't work. Like eight times it didn't work. He kept bringing them back and bringing them back and bringing them back. And they just kept wandering off and wandering off and wandering off. But heaven is where God is at the center. This is what God wants for his people all along. And it's very unfortunate, but from time to time, we'll run across a description of heaven, even from Christians that focuses on things like being reunited with family and friends, which we will. Or enjoying a remade creation, which we will. Or even seeing... Favorite pets that died. Maybe? Scripturally unclear. Um, But but in all these descriptions that people have of heaven, unfortunately, even sometimes Christians forget God. Perhaps they don't realize Jesus will be there. You're going to elbow past grandma to get to Jesus? Like... Let me be clear, how you think of heaven may be one of the simplest tests of whether you're a Christian or not, because if the best part of your heaven is seeing grandma, I don't know that you know who Jesus is. Or let me be even more clear, there are a lot of people in the world who think that heaven to them would be a place without God. If I could just get God and Christians and all of that religious stuff out of the world, then I would have heaven. Unfortunately, no, that will be hell, and they will get what they want. And that's not good. That's sad. But some people think that way. Heaven is wherever God isn't. And they'll be sorely disappointed. A little further down in Revelation 21, we read, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. In other words, the gates will never be shut. So the city of God, the city of the new Jerusalem, the place where God dwells, will always be open, it will always be safe. There is no temple in this city because the whole city, all creation, I would argue, is the temple of God at that time. All of the new heavens and the new earth will have one purpose for all people, to walk in the light of God and to bring glory to God, and as we will see, to serve God. And he will be his people, and he will dwell with us. That is heaven. Heaven is where God is and where we get to dwell with him perfectly forever. Thirdly, we see in this text that heaven is where there is no sorrow. Of course, as I said at the beginning, there will be incredible secondary blessings and benefits of a restored relationship with God and him being rightly at the center of all things and us worshiping him and everything being illuminated by him. But also, verse 4 says, "...he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more." For just as he promised in Isaiah, the former things have passed away. Again, this is the consummation of a promise that God revealed to Isaiah. He said, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And we see in the Revelation verse that the absence of mourning and pain and weeping is connected to this idea that the former things have passed away. All the things that caused us to weep will be gone. Of course, the big one, death, will be defeated. There will also be no more disease, no more illness, no more disability in heaven. A big part of the new heavens and the new earth that we are looking forward to is going to be the reality that all the old things that caused us suffering will pass away, not the least is our own bodies that we are going to have made new. The New Testament spends a lot of time talking about the material reality of the resurrection and the importance of our renewed and restored and perfected and glorified physical bodies, and you can find a Thousand sermons and books on that topic, so I won't press in on too many details, but there are whole sections of Paul's and Peter's and John's writing that are descriptions and promises of our physical restoration and the elimination of all the things that caused us sorrow and pain. Paul begins his description in Second Corinthians chapter 5 this way. He says for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home he's talking about our body is destroyed we have a building from God a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens for in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked so God says sorry God God does say through Paul Paul is saying here, and this is an argument to some of the Gnostic religions that believe that we're leaving the physical behind and becoming spiritual. Paul is actually speaking quite directly to those false beliefs. He's saying, if this tent gets destroyed, if we are physically dead and buried and gone, we are going to get a new body, a new house built, not with hands, but it'll be eternal in the heavens. And by putting it on, we won't be found naked. We're not just going to be naked spirits, you know, floating around in the clouds. We're going to have physical bodies, Paul says, eternal bodies. And of course, the central statement in First Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body put on immortality. And so sorrow and pain and weeping is all going to disappear because we have a new heaven and a new earth and we have new bodies. We have new eternal life. There will be no more loss, no more disability, no more disease. All weakness is gone, all suffering is eliminated. No more violence, no more arrogance, no more pride, no more sin, no more dishonor only imperishable, eternal strength, power, and glory. And elsewhere, Paul reveals what is perhaps even more tender and more profound reality about our future encounter with Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. A lot of our sorrow and a lot of our weeping and a lot of our grief and our dishonor in our life right now comes from the fact that we can't really be truly known or we would be ashamed. Can you imagine a heaven where you can be fully known and there's no shame? Whatever you think is shameful is a trophy of God's grace. Whatever you think is dishonorable is a testimony to his mercy. So you can be fully known. You can be fully transparent. People will see right through you. They will know you completely. And you'll have no shame, no cause to weep, no cause for dishonor. Because whatever you might think is dishonorable in heaven is simply a testimony to the mercy and the grace of God who rescued you. There's a, a quote at the end of The Lord of the Rings, um, Samwise, gamgee is standing in the Grey Havens. He's about to board the elven boats to Valinor. And that's kind of like Tolkien's heaven. And as he's standing there with Gandalf, he turns and he asks him, Is everything sad going to become untrue? <laughs> yeah, everything sad is going to become untrue. That's heaven. That's what heaven is. All the cause for shame is gone. Because there'll be no weeping. There'll be no sorrow. The former things are remembered no more. They're all turned into trophies of God's grace. Fourthly in this text, heaven is where Eden is replanted and uncursed. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed. And so heaven is a city of safety and righteousness. Heaven is a bride restored and reunited and redeemed and restored relationship with God. Heaven is a temple of God where he's at the center. And now we see that heaven is also the new Eden. The central avenue of the city runs right up to the throne of God and to the throne of Jesus. And it has the river of life running right down the middle of the street with the tree of life on either side. And there was a river running through Eden as well. But it wasn't the river of life, and the tree of life was in Eden, but mankind could not eat from it after the fall. Here is the river of life, and here are the trees of life, and they are not off limits anymore. They will be a source of healing, and perhaps of most significance, John points out in this vision of heaven, as the angel shows him this picture of heaven, and he's looking at the new heavens, and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, and the temple, and the bride, and the people filling the streets. He's looking at all of this, and his conclusion is, no longer will there be anything accursed. There's nothing cursed. The curse is lifted. The curse is gone. Heaven is the consummation of the purpose of the curse. Heaven is the reality of why the curse came to be. What does that mean? And I get to use a couple of my favorite verses now from my favorite chapter of the Bible. We look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility. That is, it was cursed. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God. He cursed it back in Genesis 3, in hope, he cursed it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this is what John gets to see. He gets to see the new heaven and the new earth and nothing is accursed. The curse is gone. The curse has accomplished its purpose. The the children of God have been glorified and all creation has been caught up into the glory of the children of God. It was God who cursed creation, who subjected this creation to deterioration, to disease, to destruction, but it was cursed in hope. The futility of creation had a hopeful purpose that one day it would result in pointing the people of God to the glory that he is, to the reality of sin, and that God was going to redeem all of these things. There was a purpose to the futility of creation, and any women that want to learn more about the purpose of futility, I think there's a wow study coming up on Ecclesiastes. And Solomon talks a lot about futility in Ecclesiastes. But John sees the consummation of that hope, Eden replanted and nothing, no longer anywhere, cursed. It's all gone. That's heaven. Heaven is where we get the new Eden replanted where the curse has been lifted. Now, if that's an overview of heaven, how should heaven then function in our lives as disciples as we live on this side of it? Well, I'll leave you with three quick applications from Scripture. The first thing, as we see heaven revealed to us and we understand the reality of it, is that we should not, as disciples, Christians for sure, should not elevate any temporary or created thing above God, but hold all the things of this world lightly. Jesus says in Matthew six nineteen to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, where your treasure is, there your heart will be Also, you see, Jesus is talking about this idolatry thing again. Where's your heart? What do you treasure? Do you really love that career? Do you really love that thing? Do you love the stuff of God or do you love God? A lot of people just love God's stuff, they don't love God. And Jesus says, Don't hold on to the stuff of this world tightly, it's all going to go. Instead, hold tightly to the Creator not the created. Now, how do you lay up those treasures in heaven? If you hold lightly to these things, how should we use the things of this world? Well, that's the second lesson that Jesus tells us. Jesus actually says, use the things of this world for eternal purposes. Everything you do in this world you should do in light of eternity. How do I work in light of eternity? How do I use my money in light of eternity? How do I use my relationships in light of eternity? How do I use my health in light of eternity? How do I use my marriage in light of eternity? The parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16 about the shrewd manager, and it's, a, it's an interesting parable because we're often confused because Jesus commends the shrewd manager after he's like super dishonest <laughs> with his, with his um, landlord. But the point is is the point of that thing is that the landlord is, is this world, and we're only here temporarily. Jesus says, you're going to get fired from this world eventually, and in the parable, the manager who finds out that the master is returning, God's coming back, and when he returns, you're going to be fired, you're going to be gone. And so the, the, the shrewd manager, he's, he goes around to everybody that he knows, and he says, here, let me give you a deal. Let me give you a deal on your receipt. Let me give you a, some more olive oil. Let me, you know, let me do a little deal for you, because I'm going to be gone, and I need some friends when I'm gone. And Jesus says, even... You know, even the evil people, even the, the people of this world are smarter about what they do with their resources than the children of heaven are. You're the children of heaven. You should use these temporary resources while you've got the chance. Because the master's returning and you won't have the chance to use them once he's here. And so use what you've got here now in order to have friends in heaven. And so I say again, use your work in light of eternity Use your money in light of eternity. Use your relationships in light of eternity. Use all the things of this world for eternal purposes. You want to annoy Satan? Then use the corruptible things of this world for eternal purposes. That will annoy Satan to no end. He gives you a whole bunch of money. You just pay it forward into heaven. Thirdly, conduct yourselves accordingly in light of eternity. 1 Peter 4, 7 says it pretty plainly. As Peter's writing this letter to his Christian friends, he said, I want to call you to mind all these things. He says, I'm going to leave this tent. My tent's going to fold up, and when my tent's gone, I want you to remember this. And he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As you've received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that everything God about God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter says, we know heaven's coming. And so while you've got a little bit of time here on earth, do everything to live above reproach, to come to church, to have fellowship, to encourage one another, to cover over sin, to speak the words of God, to serve in God's strength. Live your lives accordingly in light of heaven. That's why God has told us about heaven. I mean, we read about heaven, and we have all these curious ideas about it, and that's fine, and God wants us to know, you're going you're to be with me, and there's not going to be any, any pain, there's just going to be joy, there's going to be worship, I'm going to remake all this new. He wants us to know all that good stuff, but not just so that we sit at home and dream about it. Over and over and over again, whenever the topic of heaven comes up, whether it's in Isaiah, whether it's in the Gospels, whether it's in the epistles, the answer is always the same. Don't elevate this creation. There's a better creation coming. Don't worship the created. Worship the creator. And do everything now in your life in light of eternity to come and worship God. That's why we've been told about heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these amazing glimpses that you have given us of your throne room. Father, we thank you for the mystery of it all. We thank you for the reality that's going to be better than we can imagine. I mean, if it says it's going to be like a fruit tree with leaves of healing, it's going to be better than that. If it says it's going to be a river of life, it's going to be even better than that. If it's going to be streets of gold, it's going to be even more than that. If it's a city that's safe and illuminated with 200-foot-thick walls so that security is not an issue and gates always open and people coming and going and fellowship and commerce and glory and it's all a temple of worship to you and that sounds good, it's even going to be better than that. Father, we just can't even imagine. And so, Father, let that be an impetus for us to share this good news. We don't want anybody to miss out on the consummation of your promise. Because even though all those good things are for us, it's not mainly about us. It's mainly about you. We get to worship the Lamb forever. And what a glory that will be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.